All right, we're back. Welcome to the Cork Report podcast. If you're listening to this, there is a good chance that you know me, but just in case you don't, I'm Len Thompson, the founder of the Cork Report website, which focuses on North American wines that don't come from the West Coast, as well as the people, places, and passions behind them. This is my third or fourth time launching and relaunching this podcast. I guess you could say I'm not very good at it yet, but I'm also more than a little bit stubborn. This relaunch is part of a larger rethinking of what Cork Report Media is, and that's why I think we'll be successful this time. You'll notice I said we, not me, and that's because I'm not going to be the only voice you hear on this podcast. We're going to have a few podcasts that publish under this Cork Report podcast umbrella. Um, I'll have one that I'm calling Press Fraction, but today's episode isn't even part of that. For today's show, Cork Report contributor Paul Brady launches his show, Northern Wine Odyssey, by talking to our mutual friend David Flaherty of the Washington Wine Commission. I was actually supposed to interview Paul for this show about his upcoming uh, project, Paul Brady Wine, up in Beacon, New York, but schedules and a loud basement renovation, which you might be able to hear here in the background, um, kept delaying things. Uh, so thankfully, David filled in and uh, talked with Paul about his plans. And frankly, David, uh, who also has his own podcast, which you'll hear about, um, did a much better job than I could have done anyway. Uh, anyway, that's it for me. Uh, here's Paul Brady talking about Paul Brady Wine with David Flaherty. The Northern Wine Odyssey series is a part of Cork Report Podcast Media. To listen, just search Cork Report Podcast in Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts, plus, plus, plus. Shout out to Cork Report founder, Len Thompson. My name is Paul Brady. I'm a content contributor at Cork Report. And today I'll be speaking with my friend, former colleague, and peer in the wine industry, David Flaherty. David is the director of marketing for the Washington State Wine Commission, writes a regular column for Nation's Restaurant News, and hosts a podcast called Somlight. This episode is our conversation on the opening process of my forthcoming business, Paul Brady Wine in Beacon, New York. and composer Dave Miller for the opening music. Check him out at DaveMillerGuitar.com or wherever you purchase or stream music. But there's a different David to talk to today. David Flaherty, happy Friday. Hey, Paul, great to hear you, man. I, I like that David Miller riff. It's a really cool recording. He It's, it's just self-titled, Dave Miller. He released it earlier this year, kind of in the sort of in the thick of it all. And it's super fun, like start to finish. Good stuff, man. Well, it's great to hear your voice. I'm here in Seattle. I think we're going, what are we going? Seattle, Washington to Beacon, New York. Uh, well, I am up closer to Rhinebeck, New York. Hmm. But um, yes, you, you are correct that uh, we'll, we'll, we'll certainly be speaking on the subject of Beacon. Awesome. Well, I'm honored to be here, man. It's great to talk to you. Yeah, man. Great to, uh, great to be able to catch up. I've got lots of questions, Paul. Um, if you're okay with it, I'm going to probably jump in and, and start peppering you with questions. Fire away. <laughs> well, you know, I think it's fascinating. You know, it's like you, you and I have known each other for, man, uh, what are we looking at? Like 15 years, something like that, <laughs> close to 15 years. Um, I, don't, I don't think that. No, no. We're, it's more like 10 what are we like? Well, I eight think, or ten, like twenty twelve okay. is when I started working okay. at Terroir. Well, it's our old souls. We're just old souls that just we've traveled the millennia together forever. But no, it's yeah. So I was thinking back because I started working at Hearth and Terroir under Paul Greco in New York City in I think that was oh eight oh nine. So yeah, you you were a little later to come. Yes. Um, but you know, it, it's funny because we've known each other for a long time. Our careers have really intersected in and out of each other. We've, we've, we've both worked together in so many capacities, the restaurant floor. We've both done wine marketing. We've done events together. We've traveled around the country together, uh, doing various things in the beverage business. And I think it's, you know, now you're making a big leap. You know, there's a lot of us former restaurant people that have branched out, gotten out of restaurants. And then you're kind of like, where do, where do we go? And now you're jumping into the retail. You're jumping into being an owner. Uh, which I think a lot of us 
kind of dream about and wonder what that would be like. But, you know, I've not gone down that road. I mean, how, how have you approached that? You're not working for anybody now. You're going to be working for yourself. Well, so it's, it's kind of funny. So yes, it, it's retail and I really do envision any sort of majority of income. Hopefully there is some of that. Um, with this project being being retail, but there is going to be a wine bar and sort of tasting bar side of this whole project too. So I'm I'm not I have no desire to get back into the restaurant industry essentially as an owner. I mean, at least in the way that you and I know the restaurant industry to be. Um, so I'm really going for a, a, a new hybrid model, and I don't think I would have attempted this had I not sort of, you know, through, through experience and through a lot of conversation with, with a lot of supportive people decided to, to go in into this. When did you decide to move upstate? You know, cause again, there's a lot of transitions you've done here now. I mean, getting out of New York city is, it's like, it's uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a freedom, but uh, it's a, it's a, it's also a kind of a tearing away of, something that you've worked so hard to build in that city and, and really like paid your dues and really came up the ranks there. Tell us about leaving the city and, and landing upstate and deciding this is where I want to be. Sure. So I, I was working for the New York Wine and Grape Foundation at the time. So I was kind of back and forth all over the state in all the various different wine regions, still living in the city and doing quite a bit of work in the city, you know, sort of being that liaison between the Wine and Grape Foundation and New York City Trade. So I I sort of had an opportunity to make the move while also keeping my foot in the city because I I was going to need to have quick access to the city for events, for for all sorts of different things that the job required. And throughout my, in that first year working for the Wine and Grape Foundation, I laid, I laid eyes on the Hudson Valley really for the first time and just fell in love with it and decided this is where I need to be. And it's close enough to New York City. So you're, you're almost kind of living that dream where you have the nature, you have the seclusion, but the city is a two hour drive away or, you know, a train ride away. So I, I, calculated it such that I was close enough to New York City so that, you know, when I needed to commute in there for work, it wasn't a, wasn't an issue. Um, and it really just sort of the best of, best of both the worlds. You know, you have the beauty of the, the mountains up here, the river, all the, you know, all the agriculture and all that, um, while also, you know, still being able to work in the city. Whereas if I had moved to the Finger Lakes, that's, that's really a lot tougher because it is quite a bit farther, more than twice as far. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I first, it's funny, you know, you know, I think when you live in New York city, it takes a few years to even realize there is a world outside of New York city because it's such a struggle just to like find your feet there. But I remember um, I was uh, at grand central station one day and I saw a guy getting off of the, um, the train at Grand Central Station, and, and it was the, the what was it the the Hudson line, the Harlem line, I guess. And, mm-hmm. and he had a fly fishing rod, and I was like, "Were you just fly fishing?" And he was like, "Oh yeah, I, I go up to Croton on the Hudson." And I'm like, well, "You can like go fly fishing from New York City." So I started uh, traveling up there on the on the train, and I you'd get off a. Uh, at in Croton Falls and you just hike a mile or two and you were in this little trout stream. And then I remember going to Aaron, um, Aaron Burr cidery, uh, Andy Brennan's operation up in the Hudson Valley. And it is mm-hmm. spectacular. You, you're, you're super spot on. And then I got married in the finger lakes and That's I right, think I did. did. Yeah. I, I got married at uh Bellhurst castle up near Geneva. Geneva and seeing those wineries up there, it was a real eye opener. And then, you know, tasting those wines, you know, let's talk about that. I mean, I, I think what's really cool from what I know about your shop, and I, I want to hear more about the concept is you seem to be really wanting to go hard on New York products. Um, 
let's talk about that New York's place in the beverage world. What are some of the unique offerings that people may not know about, or may, maybe they know some but not others, in terms of beer, wine, cider, and spirits? Sure. Well, I guess I should start by telling you a little bit about how this place is going to operate. So I'm going into this operating under a winery license, which is different than a regular retail or tavern license. So a winery license comes with certain perks. Now, it also comes with limitations. The limitation being that in terms of retail, I am only allowed to sell New York State products. But the cool thing is I can sell not only wine, but also cider, beer, and spirits. Whereas a normal, what we call off-premise retail license in New York State does not allow all those things to be under one roof, right? So like you remember, if you go into a wine and liquor store in New York City, you're not going to see any beer, right? So that's pretty cool. So if you when you come in eventually to, to, to our place, you will see all those things under one roof. Now, the caveat is they're all going to be from New York State. But the thing about that is, is I don't know, maybe there's like two other states in the country that I think could pull this off, you know, whereas if you're limited to, to one state's booze, maybe that's Washington, maybe it's California, Oregon, maybe, I don't know, Michigan. Right. Right. Um, there, there's, there's a few states where I think a very focused concept would be worth it. And I, and I think that New York is one of them. And I think a lot of people would even say it's even, uh, you know, more so that for like craft beer or cider and spirits, I'm kind of like, crazy enough to, to go ahead first with a wine concept, but maybe that's just because I've very consciously decided to immerse myself in that 10 years ago. So I'm not, I'm not worried because the location in Beacon, we're right in the heart of the Hudson Valley, right sort of at the mouth of where you would go to get into Hudson Valley wine country. And I plan to have wines from, from all over the state. And then of course, beer, cider, spirits as well. And then at the bar, this again is sort of one of the perks of this, what we call a farm winery license. So I'm, I'm producing four custom wines, very, very basic, a sparkling, a white, a rosé and a red. So we will have some, some unique new products, but then at the bar, I can add a regular tavern license to this winery license. So if I wanted, if I, you know, if Beacon demands that I have Tito's because they want Tito's and soda or whatever, I can do that. I just can't sell at retail. And I don't really plan to go big on products necessarily outside of New York, but I do at the bar at least want to feature some, some wines from neighboring regions in the Northeast here that I, that I think are pretty cool, like Ontario, Canada, Michigan, Vermont, you know, maybe Virginia. So we'll see. Um, again, I, I'm very keen to just listen to to Beacon uh, as we as we progress. But uh, I love the idea of just focusing on New York and then enhancing that with products from neighboring regions. I love that. I mean, I think it's I think it's interesting, right? It's like when you know we've opened some wine bars together. In one of them being uh, Terroir Murray Hill. Uh, and then, you know, Terroir uh, Park Slope. And I think you said something that was, that I think is smart and, and I'd like to hear more about it where you go into like opening a bar or restaurant, you have your vision for what you want it to be. And with that comes pricing that is required at the, depending on what you'd go with and all that. But eventually you learn like, oh, wait a second, I have to listen to the community around me. What do they want? What do they want to drink? And if you're not doing that and you're not serving them, they quickly lose interest. Um, so have you done, how have you approached that? Have you kind of traveled around? This has been in the works now for a while. I'd imagine you've looked at a lot of spaces just in terms of potentially to like buy or consider. You've probably traveled outside of Beacon Inn around. What have you kind of learned about the bars or the restaurants that are successful in that area? And, and it, is theirs mostly a New York focus? There, 
I would say there is not a New York focus necessarily in terms of wine, which has always sort of boggled my mind. And, and you find that really everywhere um, throughout the state. Like if you go out to the North Fork or to the Finger Lakes or to the Niagara Escarpment and, and here in the Hudson Valley, I don't think restaurants and bars are taking advantage enough of the opportunity that New York wines are presenting right now. I think that once upon a time, it would have been more apropos to call it a responsibility, you know, to list the token local wine, but we're well beyond that in New York and, and probably actually have been for some time. Though I look, I mean, we, there was a lot of bad wine that was made here for a very long time and there's bad wine made everywhere, right? But I, I truly believe that we are well beyond that. And it, it, you're missing out on an opportunity now. It's no longer a responsibility to list a local wine. So, you know, in, in that sense, and, and throughout the years uh, of working as a sommelier or for the Wine and Grape Foundation in marketing and branding, it, it always just sort of was a head scratch. You know, why, why when you go to some restaurants like, in the Finger Lakes, is it an all Italian wine list? Or even in New York City, like, you know, right. where some restaurateur will be like, all my ingredients, all my food, all my beers, everything is local, farm to table, except again, it's an all Italian wine list. Yeah. So um, I, I, I think that just because I sort of had a, had maybe an unhealthy obsession with this from the time I moved to New York to now. I, I have a enough sort of experience as to how to create a wine program that will hit all the marks. Like I'm looking at New York and the diversity of grapes, almost like it's its own country. Like let's talk about Italy again, like almost like it's its own Italy. We, we know of Italy as being, I mean, this, this wine country with just an absurd amount of indigenous grapes, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there's, there's an incredible diversity of grapes in New York too, you know, not just, uh, you know, vinifera, but also a really cool Renaissance that's going on right now with hybrid grapes grapes that were um, either sort of uh, found in nature, like the Labrusca grapes, like Concord, Niagara, Delaware, Catawba, things like that to the like, you know, second wave of hybrids that were originally created in Europe to for things like combating phylloxera and, uh, you know, to, to withstand cold winters. And then, of course, vinifera grapes as well. And, there, and there's a lot of action going on using all of these grapes today in a sustainable way to make wine. So there is definitely now something for everyone. And I think it it wasn't always so. And if you've really sort of studied it over the last decade or so, it might really only be right now that it's the right time for this sort of thing. Yeah, it seems like it's funny in listening to you talk about this. It seems like there's a lot of forces here that have been in the works for a few years and that are now coming to fruition. Because if you look at your background, right, you've worked with some of the greatest wine people, not just in New York City, but in the world, you know, Paul Greco at Hearth and Terroir, you've worked with Pascaline Lapeltier at Rouge Tomat, you worked at Gramercy Tavern, Julia Pope and whoever else was there and the, their wine team at the time. And it's like, so you, you, you have developed a worldly palette. You know how to identify some of the greatest wines in the world. And additionally, you've always been a champion for these kind of like undiscovered regions, especially domestically, which I've always thought was interesting about you because there's a lot of Psalms that you know, we try to get out of like the well-known regions and, you know, it's like, I remember Beaujolais was a big deal. It was like, oh, Beaujolais and then the Loire. It's like, let's get away from the marquee regions. But you, you've been going domestically, right? Like you had this whole like lake wines fascination with wines from Michigan and the Niagara <laughs> escarpment and all, all over it. And, but now that you're in New York, then you had the job for New York Wine and Grape Foundation where you got to like, your job was to to discover all these wineries and not just the wines, but the people, right? So it's like now you have all these forces coming together. I mean, that's got to be, I'm excited to see it. I mean, this is going to be one of the most thoughtful, well-curated New York wine lists in the state. I don't know. I mean, it, it may or may not be. I The thing that I 
enjoy most in life is having fun with all this. And I just sort of have always, I mean, I, I, I'm from Michigan, right? I spent a lot of time in Canada and I've always just really enjoyed like Northern culture, almost in like a satirical way. I don't know. I love ice hockey. I love wearing Carhartt. You know, I like the snow. I like, uh, I like that. I, you know, grew up playing pond hockey on frozen bodies of water. And that was one of the things that just led me to Paul Greco, you know, in, uh, uh, and to terroir and hearth, like I remember reading bef- even before I moved to New York City, which was in 2008. You know, by that time I was reading the New York Times wine column, and Paul was often sort of featured as as a panelist in in Eric Asimov's critical tastings. And so I was I was fascinated by Paul, obviously because Paul's fascinating, right? And so when I moved to New York that was one of the first places I went was terroir wine bar. I remember I just, I didn't have the kind of money to go to dinner at hearth yet at that time, but I could go to terroir, right. And and buy a half glass of wine. And I, and I remember being there and whoever was working at the time, I don't remember who it was, but they were wearing a summer of Riesling t-shirt and the back of that t-shirt, which the summer of Riesling for anybody who doesn't know was really simply just, uh, a celebration of Riesling all summer long in which at Terroir Wine Bar, all white wines by the glass were Riesling and you, you didn't have any other options. And the, there was there were summer Riesling like staff t-shirts, as you quite well remember. And uh, I just- I had to the, count I, and roll those damn things up every month. I know. Uh, <laughs> I got the short end it, of the stick on that one. I, I don't, I mean, they're, they're, they're different now, but the the old ones on the back, it was like, I remember thinking this looks like a Guns N' Roses like tour t-shirt because it listed all these cities and like winemakers and places in the world where Riesling w- was well known. And I remember seeing, you know, Herman Weimer, Finger Lakes and, you know, Cape Spring, Ontario. And I was like, oh man, like this, this guy knows because coming from Michigan and Canada, you know, I kind of cut my teeth on those wines from Ontario. So like Cape Spring, CSV Riesling, I think that was the first Riesling I ever had in my life. And so that just kind of sparked something in me and made me really just, uh, I kept my eye on terroir. And when the time was right, I I pounced when the opportunity to work there presented itself. And then uh, of course, you know, along the way, I've come to find that Paul was Canadian. So there was sort of a reason for those Northern wines. And it was, um, you know, back then Paul was really sort of the, the it sommelier not just in New York, but I I think maybe nationally. And it validated that I wasn't crazy. Those wines were good. If he was listing those wines, to me, it meant that those wines must be good. Yeah. I mean, he was, you know, what I loved uh, learning from him as you did as well, is that you got to do a little more work. You got to dig a little bit deeper into the wine world, into the beverage world and spend time, you know, and put in the time to like discover these because as a buyer, you've got tons of salespeople coming around and, you know, there's deals to be had, there's big buys to make that can make your numbers on on the business side, make your life easy, but he never made his life easy. (laughs) I think he was buying. No, he did not. From upwards of 50 different reps at any time. I mean, you could feasibly run a restaurant or bar operation that has a decent beverage program with five or 10. And he had to meet with all those people. And they, over time, knew that he was looking for the rare finds, you know, and and he was able to push that envelope and champion those small guys. And I think we saw that. And I think I think we also saw how when you do champion the small guys, especially locally, and when they show up, to do a wine dinner or they show up to say thank you. That connection's so real. And I remember making that connection when we were at Hearth, right? It's like I helped convert the spirits program to all New York spirits. And I remember there's some pushback when you try to do that because people would come into the restaurant, they'd want to drink Stoli, vodka, whatever. We had to get rid of that stuff because we had to almost force them to drink the local spirits. And it was like in a hospitality-driven spot, 
somebody's like, well, I just want my kettle one martini. And you're like, we don't have kettle one. But we have these other great New York vodkas. Let me introduce you to them. So we almost had to take the 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 well-known tried and true offerings off the list. And I think I learned that from Paul. Well, I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to double down on this because you're you're absolutely right. And I'm going to go out on a ledge here and say that that didn't always work. And <laughs> sometimes it flat out failed. Yeah, and you're right. I, I, I most definitely learned that lesson and ha- have taken it with me everywhere. I was a couple of years ago when I was working for the Wine and Gray Foundation still, I was at lunch with... Alexander Peartree, who is the tasting director of Wine Enthusiast Magazine. And he also, his beat is, he reviews the wines from Southern Italy and also New York. And may, maybe that's changed since then, but um, but at, at, at that time, uh, th- those were his beats. And he, he also was doing some writing about cider. And I, <laughs> I was mean, hoping you would say Alexander Peartree <laughs> was writing about something to do with cider. <laughs> <laughs> and I think this will, uh, you'll have something to say about this here. So I asked him because he had, he had a, a big sort of long form piece of journalism that was forthcoming on Cider for, for the magazine in print. And I said, you know, Alex, is it going to happen for Cider? Did it already happen? Or like, is it, is it about to happen? Because we, we happened to be in the tavern at Gramercy Tavern. And I said, you know, I worked at Terroir and Hearth when the beverage program, like the whole idea was like, we have everything from everywhere, right? We have like 20 different sherries by the class, 20 different freaking Madeiras, you know, and of course, like 20 different ciders. And then again, I went to Gramercy Tavern to work after that. And that was a big cider list too. I mean, a lot by the bottle, but again, a lot by the glass. And I got to say, I feel like I can count on two, if not one hand, the amount of ciders by the glass that I served in my like four years of total between Hearth, Terroir, and Gramercy Tavern. It just, it just wasn't popping back then. And his take on that was sort of, he was like, well, yeah, I don't think it's really happened yet. It, it, it might still happen. He's, but more interestingly, what he pointed out was, he's like, that's really extraordinary that you had those experiences with those big beverage programs. He's like, because you have seen a lot of trial and error already. Mm-hmm. It, was a, it was a pain in the ass. I mean, it, but I loved it. It, it, it was like, because we were we were doing something different, like you said, nobody had twenty ciders by by the glass. That was that that wasn't all the time, right? That was mainly during cider week, where we would then really blow out the list. You know, do yeah. twenty thirty, and I was like, well, can mean, we do them by was, the glass? Can we do them all by the glass? And it was kind of all the time at Gramercy. I re- I'm like looking at that page in my head right now. We would always um, have four or five by the glass. All the time, which I think is is maybe on par with Gramercy, but but when we did Cider Week, then we were cranking probably twenty of them by the glass. Yeah. Well, right? and just which like is, I mean, how much sherry did we pour down the drain? Yeah, I was gonna say like uh, some of that, a lot of that cider, unfortunately, go down the drain. But I think it's like, but I mean, that was we were, I was, and there was a number of us. Uh, Jeff Russell gets a huge shout out. I mean, there were a few of us that really got into the, the apple, the, the cider movement. Right. And it was fun to be the ones like really going for it. Um, because you, you, you know, it, it might not be every night, but you get that one guest that comes in and they try a cider and they're like, what? And you get to see that light bulb go off where they're like, I had no idea. And then you're like, Oh, you just wait try this one, try this one, try this one. And then it's like, then the, then it becomes bigger than the cider, the ciders. It becomes about the ethos of the restaurant or the wine bar. You go there to be mind blown. You go there to have your eyes open to something you've never seen before. Totally. And I think that there's really no one who has done this better than Paul Greco, which is, that whole teaching of, you know, take the guest on a journey, right? And he could pull it off. He was 
he had the ability to create the wacky programs and also do, you know, practice what he preached, which was, no, you're not going to have that glass of, of, you know, Napa Valley Cabernet or whatever. I'm going to give you something else. And he did it in a hospitable way that he could pull off. And that was something that was adapted almost like industry-wide, at least at the sort of finer dining places and wine bars and things like that throughout the city. And ever since then, in sommelier culture, in New York City, it was always like, you know, the sommelier saying, let me take you on a journey. Don't, don't look at the wine list. Come on in. I got this. Just talk to me. Let me take you on a journey. And I have, honestly, David, like, I've, I've gone a little away from that because I think we started to think a little bit too much about ourselves with that philosophy. And most of us really can't pull it off. Paul was someone who could, and he made it hospitable. He didn't make it about himself. I don't know that I can pull that off, which brings me back to, you know, that topic that is listening to the guest as opposed to saying, let me take you on the journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> He, he kind of mastered the art of confrontational hospitality. <laughs> yes. Where you, you were taking care of the guests, but there was an element of uh, uh, irreverence. There was an element of like pushback that like Paul just could do instinctively. And we all tried, but, you know, would fail sometimes at. But I mean, let, let's back up a little bit because I'm curious now, right? Because you're now embarking on this new phase in your career and you you have had people like Paul, people like Pascaline, people like Juliet, that I think you brought up something that, that I love, which today's sommeliers, today's wine directors, they're learning that th- these lists cannot be about them. They can't be ego lists anymore because they're they're running in a very important part of the business. The, the beverage department in any restaurant is one of the biggest drivers. And if that is not maximized to make profits, then they're not doing their job, right? So talk about that because now that you are more going to be focused on your business, but you're going to have some fun with your products as well. What have you kind of learned from all those people that I just mentioned that that you're kind of now approaching building your business and building your beverages, building your food programs and the costs and all that associated with it? So I think that it's possible for some to create programs based on their passions, as well as sort of anecdotally, what is popular or interesting or just good to bring to the table, to expose to a new audience. But I also like to look at data nowadays, and it's easier than ever to do. So, Take a take a let's take a brewery for example. Okay, so you go into a brewery in New York. Let's say you're you have someone in your group who doesn't drink beer. Okay, and so what are they going to drink? Let's say they're going to drink some wine or spirits or, or you know whatever. And the brewery has all these sort of geeky local spirits that sort of play off of the, the 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 beer focus and might be unknowns right to that person who doesn't drink beer i think that the data shows that if you are a person who is in a group and you go to a brewery and you're not going to drink the beer at that brewery then you're then you're not an adventurous drinker which means you want to drink a jack and coke you want to drink a Tito's and soda. You want to drink a glass of Sauvignon Blanc. You don't want to drink, you know, a glass of Mueller Thurgau. You don't want to drink like, uh, you know, Finger Lakes Distilling, Seneca Lake Drums, Gin, and 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 like local tonic. You know, you know what I'm saying. So it it I think that now we have analytics and data and the means to study our demographics more so than we once did. How are you managing that though? Because the, the, the passion products 
versus the business side. Do you feel pretty well equipped now to start purchasing, buying, setting up a program? Or is that kind of daunting and a little bit frightening to you? The the assembling of the wines is certainly not at all intimidating to me, as, at least when it comes to an all New York list. Uh, beer and spirits and cider, I'm going to need help for sure. And I have, um, I do have a, a partner in this who's, you, you may have met him, a good, my oldest, closest friend in New York, Kels Nolenberger. We went to college together. He was my roommate for many years. And uh, he, he did some web design for Summer of Riesling once upon a time. And uh, he, he is the finance guy. So he is the guy that tells me no in terms of, of the costs. So I am 100% comfortable delegating and asking for help when I feel like it's, you know, well outside of, you know, any, any so-called expertise that I have. How did you come up with the name? So let's talk now, now more about the operation. It's called Paul Brady Wine. Let's start <laughs> okay. there. Why, why the name? Uh, okay. So you just want to see your name on a big sign in lights. Yep, like like Don't Dirk Diggler in uh, Boogie Nights, <laughs> <laughs> which is actually kind of what the branding looks like, which was done by our, our good friend Stephen Solomon. So you, of course, know Stephen Solomon well. He is an artist, graphic designer, sommelier, longtime New York City restaurant server. Multiple and, James Beard nominations for his graphics, yeah, mind you. All awesome around guy. amazing person. And so there was no doubt in my mind that I, that I wanted to work with Steven on some branding and on some, some graphics for, for the menu and the website and all that. And so as we started our conversations about the, the branding, I had a different name for, for the business at that time. And so like first conversation, he's like, all right, so what's this place called? And I tell him, and he's like, no, that's not what it's called. He's like, the name is Paul Brady Wine. <laughs> and I, I was like, um, what? And then my my business partner, Kells, was on, on the call too. And he was kind of like, yeah, yeah, Steven's right. And I'm like, what? No, I I don't know if I can like accept that or, or handle that. I, I don't even know. I didn't, I just felt uneasy about it at the time. But Steven was so insistent on it. And then the reason is, and you might remember this. So when I started working at Terroir, there, I, I could not be Paul because there was another Paul, which was obviously Paul Greco. So uh -huh. I had to be Paul Brady. And so that stuck with me at every single restaurant job that I had in New York City after that. So I went to Gramercy Tavern, in which, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, crossover between the terroir and Gramercy Tavern universe. So with, I mean, without even having to introduce myself, you know, I, I already was not Paul. I had to be Paul Brady. Um, and, and it just somehow stuck. And I remember, you know, various industry people when I was working at the Wine and Grape Foundation who would have had, wouldn't have known any of this. We're like, by the way, he's not Paul. He's he's Paul Brady. So it, it it just it is sort of my name in in this industry, at least in the greater New York City area. And as much as I wanted to fight that, I, I just kind of accepted it, and it it ended up working better with the designs that that Stephen made, and it it just tested better. <laughs> yeah i mean yeah a number of us like called our called each other by our last names you know like i was flaherty stinton was stinton um but yeah you were always paul brady <laughs> no nickname yeah. right? no nickname evolved like that was no. the nickname it was almost like there was no space between the the, the word paul yeah and it's the like word brady yeah. it was like paul brady it was like one word um <laughs> So yeah, with, I mean, like to with, this day, if I go to Hearth and Christine Wright is managing the floor, I mean, it's Paul Brady, you know, Paul Jerry Brady's Rock, here. have a call, Paul, Paul Brady, how are you? You know, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> um, so 
I'd imagine you looked at lots of spaces. You guys probably spent a lot of time trying to figure out what it is you want. Tell us about, you know, the old adage is location, location, location. Tell us about that process. And then when you found the spot that you're building out now, what was that moment like? Did you realize it right away or did you kind of have to back into it? What was that like? Pretty much right away. We did look at uh, some other spaces, but I, I almost think of it as apartment hunting in New York City. And after you do that, I mean, like, I don't know how many apartments you had in New York, but I had a bunch. And when you when you look for apartments long enough in a place like New York City, you, you get better at it, right? To the point where, and that, that was the same approach I used when I found my house that I rent now up here in the Hudson Valley. If you have the experience and you do sort of the, inter- the, the, the homework on the internet in your search, I believe that you only need to see, you're, you're only going to look at one place and you're going you're gonna to go for it on the spot because you, you've done it enough times in a difficult, challenging market like New York City. You know what is fair when you see it. And of course, it's a competitive market. So when you recognize that something is good and even more importantly, is it fair? You have to accept it on the spot because if you don't, five minutes later, somebody else will. And I've, I've learned that what's mo- never to look for a deal. If you find a deal, it's too good to be true. Something's going to happen. You're, the ceiling's going to cave in, right? You're, you're, you're going to have water damage. You're going to have bed bugs. Something will come back to haunt you. What's more important than a deal is understanding when something is fair. And so we, we did look at a few places, but when I found the one that we settled on, it, I mean, it was pretty instantaneous. And we did work with uh, with a realtor. So if you, if you can afford to do that, I, I definitely highly recommend it. But it was really kind of, um, kind, of kind of love at first sight, just in terms of the location and uh, the structure of a building, which is, it's a new building. There's four floors of of modern apartments uh, in the, I think there's 24 apartment units in the building and then commercial spaces on the ground floor, which is on main street, right in, right in the center of beacon. How big is the space? It's just under 1500 square feet. And did you say it's going to be bisected? Like literally like two different rooms, one where it's the quote, like the retail shop. And then the other side where it's going to be more the the wine bar or are they all yeah, kind of, so, I think so by layout, law you kind of have to have them physically separated or no. You not not with the winery license. So okay. the, the the layout is a little bit like in the shape of the letter L. So the the like if you're looking at the letter L, the like top of the letter, that is where that's sort of like where the back of house will be. That's where the storage rooms will be, the, the kitchen will be there, the bathrooms are back there, and there's a hallway that sort of you know walks you back to the end of the building, which is where, where the two bathrooms are. And then in front of the bathrooms are the storage room, the kitchen, and then the sort of bottom of the letter L, which is like a long rectangular space on one side is the retail. And on the other side is the wine bar. So intentionally we have separated them. I mean, I think that that whole hybrid retail restaurant, retail wine bar concept is incredible. And like, Weirdly enough, I never saw that until maybe five years ago when I was in San Diego. And well, San Diego you can't, can't really do it in New York by law. Okay. Unless, unless and I was you, like, you know? why, why, you know, why was this not allowed? This is amazing. And one of the things that they do, and I'm curious if you're going to do, is you could have access to whatever the list was at the wine bar, but you could also have access to the retail products. Um, and then you could consume them on premise with like, there was a, like an upcharge or something to do. So are you, are people able to do that? Are they able to grab bottles of wine from the retail shop and sit down and pop them open in the space? Yeah, that's pretty common, uh, at winery tasting rooms. It's, it, it functions exactly how you said, you know, there's the, you buy a bottle, there's usually like some little corkage fee to consume it on premise. So, yeah. But I guess like that's that's where it's interesting is like um, how does the whole you're also a winery come into this because I I keep imagining that like this big display of all New York products 
but you're under a winery license. So you did mention you're going to have five of your own wines. Um, how does that play into this? And, you know, tell us about the wine. Have you made any of the wine yet? And who are you working with to do that? What's your yeah, sure. So there, there's four wines, um, starting, you know, very simple, um, a white, a red, a rosé, and a sparkling. Would, would, would love to make more, right? <laughs> there are so many things in the future that I want to do, fortifieds and, and um, you know, more sparkling wine. If, if I could have like just a rainbow of sparkling wines, I would. Um, that would be, that's a, that's a lofty goal. But again, starting with the basics. So four wines, four different winemakers. Um, I'm happy to talk styles. I kind of want to keep uh, who the winemakers are close to my chest at this time. Uh, cause we're going to, we're going to roll that out a little closer to the opening. Um, but, uh, the, the sparkling is, it's going to be a pet nat. It's from the 2020 harvest. It is a blend of two hybrid grapes, uh, two hybrid, uh, red grapes. One is called Leon Mio, which is a old school French American hybrid. Uh, the other is Marquette, which is a newer wave hybrid from what you call a university of Minnesota hybrid grape. Uh, Marquette's a grape that's been getting quite a bit of uh, notoriety over the years from from some wineries in Vermont, also New York, uh, and, and some other University of Minnesota hybrid grapes as well, like Brianna, La Crescent. Um, it's it's they're pretty cool, pretty interesting. Um, and there's a little bit of Cap Franc in that as well. That is bottled. I have not tasted it. I was in touch with the winemaker the other day. Uh, he he. <laughs> he likes it. He was like, we did it. We made Lambrusco. <laughs> so I'm super stoked to taste it. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to get a COVID test in the next week and go up there and, uh, uh, assuming the result is, uh, negative and, uh, taste the wine and, and, uh, have dinner with him and his wife. Uh, let's see. The white wine is a blend of Gewurztraminer, Riesling and Chardonnay. So some people have asked me, well, why didn't you make a Riesling? My, you know, there, there's an ocean of Riesling here in New York. I love Riesling, but it's easy enough for me to showcase Rieslings from all the great Riesling producers that already exist here in New York. So my thinking was just offer something new. And this particular winemaker was someone who really likes blending and it's not something he gets to do all that often. So it was, that was sort of an opportunity to, to make, uh, make a new blend and I was, you know, thinking like different white blends that I like, like, you know, white Rhone blends, Alsace blends. So we kind of went, we kind of leaned into the Alsace direction with the Gewurz and the Riesling and a little bit of Chardonnay just to sort of neutralize it all. And, and, uh, it, it ended up being kind of this like dry, almost more Muscat tasting, uh, type of white, which I love. And let's see what else. Rosé. Rosé will be a blend likely of Blaufrankisch Cabernet Franc and maybe a little bit of Pinot Gris in there. We're going to taste and do some blending trials probably in January. And the red is another hybrid grape, which is called Deshaunic. So this is another uh, older French American red hybrid grape. And what we did with that was, was handpicked whole cluster and we, We've uh, did full carbonic maceration, and then we added gamay skins to add tannin and a bit more structure to the juice. So it finished the carbonic maceration with the gamay skins in there, and then we pressed, and now it's it's in a it's in an older French oak barrel, and the the gamay skins really add a good bit of structure and a little bit of that gamay flavor. Plus the carbonic and the whole cluster. I mean, we're 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 going for for like gamay style here, but using these French American hybrid grapes, of which we have so many to work with here in New York. And so far, I'm really thrilled with the result of that. I think I'm going to taste it tomorrow. Actually, I mean that's insane, dude. I love <laughs> I love, <laughs> I love a, like none of those is a traditional one. <laughs> like it's also like you know, having a little bit of familiarity, but nowhere near, obviously your knowledge or, or many people's knowledge of the New York wines now, like, wow, you guys are really going for it. That's so cool. Um, 
I mean, it kind of like, I know it sounds like that, but the other thing, David, is like when you're first starting out, you only have access to certain fruit. Like no one's going to sell me premier vinifera Cabernet Franc. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like no one's going to (laughs) like give me, you know, uh, like really good high quality Pinot Blanc or something like that. So, But that's not the marketing angle, Paul. That That is, you cannot market it that way. <laughs> you have to say this. I know. Really, well, I mean, I was literally on a, um, a virtual event last night with a, with a wine, winemaker and somebody asked him, um, why are you guys planting those Portuguese red varieties uh, next to your driveway when you come in? You know, what's the story? And he was kind of like, well, do you want the real story or do you want the, the romantic story? And we're like, well, what's the real story? And he was like, those are the vine cuttings that were like 25 cents a vine. And at that point, we ran out of money. <laughs> but, now, but now, you know, that business forced business decision, he's now growing these Portuguese reds that are phenomenal. And it's, you know, it's like you kind of get backed into these things sometimes. But I, I know with your skill and probably the people you're working with, the wines are going to be super delicious. Um, how are you going to approach, you know, so much of this as I'm, hearing you talk about just even describing those wines, right? Like you're going to have to have a staff that's pretty well educated on all things, New York from spirits to ciders to all these wines that you're talking about, the producers, like how are you going to approach that? Because that's one thing I think we learned very much at, at hearth and terroir is that if you have this kind of like really aggressive beverage program, lots of like aha moments waiting for people. If you don't have a staff, that's educated, that can sell these well and, and, and understand them, you're doomed. So how are you going to be approaching that as you start to think about putting together your staff? So, I mean, obviously we, we, we would love to have a great staff and I, and I believe that we will, and that can make all the difference in the world. But again, I'm going to kind of go back to, to lessons learned. This is something that I talk a lot about with my friend, Mike Faircloth, who owns a wine shop, Vinyl Wines on the Upper East Side. And also now Vinyl Beer, they opened a beer shop right next door. They took over the space that uh, used to be uh, a barber shop next door and opened a beer shop. So I I haven't been there yet, but dying to get in there. Anyway, so something that I learned from Mike, which I think, again, is just something that it's so easy for us to forget because we become so immersed in, in our little 1% of the geeky beverage world, right? And that is the far majority of people who come into your shop or your restaurant or your bar or your winery are normal ass people who want to get drunk. So it doesn't take you know, a necessarily someone who can tell you all the original crossings of these hybrid grapes or explain that the benchmark for Cabernet Franc is the Loire Valley or whatever. Far more often, it's just someone who wants a good bottle of wine. And if you start going in that direction, in terms of, you know, kind of geeking out in like 10 seconds, you've lost them. So I I really believe because of the success of, of Mike at his shop and the way I've seen him um, execute sales on the floor there that we overthink things far too often and it and it's more about just kind of having good capable people you know understand what what they want to get out of the job but don't expect you know, them to be able to, to, you know, off the cusp, you know, list the, the history of the various waves of like hybrid grapes in North America. But you will agree that, especially on the wine bar side, if you've got people that are, are like, want to have a, a beverage experience, they want to sit down, they want to taste some wines, they need a steward. And they need that steward to not only talk the geeky side of it, but there's a lot of storytelling involved. I mean, that's what people love about, uh, you know, I can imagine you guys getting tourists to the region and the, you know, if you guys position yourself, right, they're going to be like, Oh, I want to go experience 
the beverages of New York, they're going to point to Paul Verdi wine, right? And they're going to roll in and they're going to want to sit down and learn, right? I mean, on the wine bar side in particular, right? Aren't they going to want to know the stories, hear about the producers? Well, so... I'll, I'll share with you something. So throughout uh, the summer, and actually this weekend is my last weekend, I've been working weekends in the tasting room at Millbrook Winery. Are you familiar with Millbrook? Heard of them. So yeah. it's a sizable winery up here in the Hudson Valley. Um, excellent winery. Make almost all vinifera wines. They're well distributed. They're distributed by Winebow in New York City. They're, they're kind of known for... Um, they make a Tokai Ferlano. They have a state Tokai Ferlano and it's, it's dry and super minerally. And, and yeah, very, very, that's sort of their flagship white wine. And, and then it's, you know, the other, the other sort of cool climate grapes, Chardonnay. Uh, they've got some Gruner, Pinot Noir, Cap Franc. Um, but they also, you know, they have a wine that's, oh, they have two Rieslings as well. And both of them are dry. And the funny thing is they have this, white wine and it's the best selling wine in the whole winery and it's a blend of various white grapes including a couple hybrid grapes and it's got about 10 grams of residual sugar okay now this is a winery in an affluent part of the hudson valley that sees especially you know since no one can travel i mean the wineries have have gotten so much foot traffic this year, which it, which which is great, it is a silver lining because they do uh, they have been missing uh, missing out on a lot of restaurant sales in terms of revenue. Uh, this particular white wine with ten grams of re- residual sugar is by far the, the best selling wine at the winery. Meanwhile, they have two rieslings that are bone dry, right? And and I was like, why don't you just have an off dry riesling? I mean, obviously you have this this white wine here that's flying off the shelves with 10 grams of residual sugar. So that's still what the masses of people want that are coming here. And yet, for some reason, you, you have a state Riesling. You could make an off-dry Riesling without having to source these other grapes from other vineyards around and add 10 grams of residual sugar to it. But for I don't know what reason, they insist on making these Rieslings dry. And that's a conversation for, for another day because I, I have, a, I have some thoughts about uh, this sort of obsession with dry Riesling and how people think that's uh, or wineries and, and sommeliers think that people want to drink dry Riesling, but it's, I, I have thoughts there anyway. Sure. Uh, the, the point is at the end of the day uh, it's been a great experience working at this winery because I've been able to see what the masses of people want and when they come in for a tasting, most of the time, David, honestly, like they kind of want to catch up with their friend that, that they're there with. And if it's more than two people, it's almost like, forget about it. You cannot put on the show. You, you got to just get in there, pour the wines, maybe name drop what the wines are and, and get out and let them talk. And it's, it's again, I, I go back to like this, the 1%, right? It is sort of that. I don't know, one out of 10 or one out of a hundred people that want to be taken on the journey. But experience tells me nowadays that most people, they kind of just want to drink. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I understand that. I mean, I think that that's one thing that uh, I learned in retail. I worked in retail. Oh boy. I don't know when that was. Uh, I don't know. Oh, three, oh, four in Brooklyn Heights in this tiny little wine shop. And I think nine out of 10, um, nine out of 10 uh, times, you know, we'd have the same conversations a lot dealing with sweetness, people's misunderstanding of sweetness, but you know, there would be that one out of 10 person that really wants to geek out. Um, t- tell us, you know, are you going to have, cause I mean, again, I'm, I'm imagining what this must be like to sit down and um, I'm just trying to think about like, are there going to be maps and what, what's the kind of like visual look of the place going to be? Oh, totally. Like that's, that's an area where I feel like aesthetically we can geek out a little bit more because there's such an interesting history uh, of New York state wines that most people don't know. And throughout my time working for the wine and Gray foundation, I was, I sort of 
went out of my way to to learn and visit these old wineries. I mean, we still have wineries and built original buildings and facilities that go back to the 19th century. And I, I I've maintained relationships with those families and I've been in touch with them recently. And I'm super eager to share that story. And so I've asked uh, a few of these wineries, like, Hey, do you have any, like, you know, crap in your attic that you want to give me that I can put on display to, to tell the story uh, of the history of, of wine in this state. And they're pretty, they're enthusiastic about that. Um, because it's, it's, quite honestly, has been ignored a little bit. And it's super fun. I mean, we could, again, that's that's a subject for another day. But there's there's a lot of fun memorabilia and, and just stuff, you know, in attics, in basements, in cellars, at these wineries that uh, that it, it, it sounds like we'll be able to get our hands on some of it to, to have on display. I think I love that because... I think that that's one of the most genius things that Terroir, the wine bars, did. And I remember we opened up Terroir East Village, the first one, and nobody, it was a tiny little space, just it was going to be this little sandbox. And then it got really popular. And then we decided to open another one and it got really popular. And then I remember there was an offer at one point from some investment company to potentially build a Terroir in Turks and Caicos. (laughs) <laughs> and it led us to have this philosophical discussion of what is the terroir wine bar uh, milieu, <laughs> you know? What, what does it look like and feel like? If you go to Turks and Caicos terroir, are we transporting the East Village to Turks and Caicos? When you walk into the terroir, it feels like you're in the East Village of New York City. Or are we walking into the terroir Turks and Caicos and it feels like Turks and Caicos. And that seemed like a a basic question, but we went with the latter. And I think it was the most genius thing that was done because then you go into Tribeca, you go into Murray Hill, you go into Park Slope, you go up on the High Line where we built the other terroirs. And then you get a look at the history of the neighborhood. You get a look at, well, what is the essence of Tribeca, what is the essence of Park Slope? And I would, and it seems like you've kind of like organically taken that on. Like I want to go into Paul Brady Wine, and I want to feel like I'm in the Hudson Valley. I want to feel like I'm in New York State. Yeah, and it's it's super. I mean, I I, I can't really express how much I loved that part of my previous job with the New York wine and grape foundation, like getting to go to Pleasant Valley wine company, which, which is one of the uh, bonded winery number one in, in the United States up in Hammondsport, really? Chico Lake. Yeah. Wow. And I mean, the original sellers are, are still there. I'll, I'll send you some photos. And, and it was a back then New York wine. It was all about sparkling wine. It was all champagne method uh, sparkling wine made from the Labrusca grapes, Catawba and Delaware grapes like that. And to be able to, to go in that setting and to bring, you know, trade from New York city and throughout the rest of the country and sort of angle the tasting there to sparkling wine. Like the, the, the stop on, on that part of the trip was about being in that, in that place, tasting sparkling wines from the modern producers while we were in that historical place. So that's kind of the feeling that I, that I want to bring down here to the Hudson Valley. Tell, I have a, a, another question about the food. I, I know you had mentioned to me that um, you're going to offer uh, charcuterie plates, which I think charcuterie is, is fascinating. And I think that that's, you know, thankfully one of the things we learned in working where we did is that Marco Canora at Hearth, uh, George Caden, Jordan Frozalone, the chef de cuisines that worked under him, they all became fascinated with charcuterie. And I think it's just such a cool thing to explore. It's delicious with beverages. It's relatively easy to execute as an operator. And uh, it can really reflect the, the land around you too. Tell us about how you're going to approach the, the, the food program and in particular the charcuterie. 
Sure. So again, this is sort of me being hellbent on not wanting to be a restaurant and instead really trying to focus on a new hybrid model. So I've partnered with a, with a chef right down the street, uh, Brian Arnorf. He has a restaurant. He has two restaurants. Uh, his sort of big deal farm to table restaurants called Kitchen Sink. And he's creating a charcuterie for two, just like the one back in the day at Hearth that, that George Caden uh, was, uh, you know, amazingly put together. I mean, that was, that was my favorite thing at hearth. It was, and, I wanted that every time I went in there. Oh my God. Yeah. And yeah. so I think, you know, Brian's excited about producing it and sourcing everything from local farms. And he, he grew up on a farm, his family owns a farm and, you know, by, by all the prep work and all the production being done down the street and him essentially delivering it to me such that all we'll have to do is plate it. I, I, I'm, I eliminate food waste. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I, I think that I can cost it out and, and get enough of a margin and have sort of the main star of the show in terms of food, at least three nights a week, like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, be this incredible charcuterie for two and scale it up to, to groups of larger sizes. Uh, and, you know, ba- throughout our conversation so far, I just, uh, you know, we do this by reservation. He has enough time. He really doesn't need that much time to order and to prep. And we think that we'll be able to execute that stylistically similar to to how it was on the board at Hearth. And that will be sort of in in lieu of like a a tasting menu. So you have this big ass plate of charcuterie uh, in front of you with, of course, you know, locally baked bread sourced from a bakery in Beacon or maybe... Maybe that's something that they're going to do for us as well. Different spreads and butters and and some pickled veg and things like that. Uh, and again, like that's that's the meal. <laughs> There's no dinner. It's just this like charcuterie for two or for four or for six or whatever your group size is for the busy nights of the week. And again, this is just my attempt to eliminate food waste and to stop sort of operating on those razor thin margins that restaurants have had to operate on over the years. And then the other nights of the week, I think in the beginning, we'll probably keep the bar closed a couple nights a week, you know, um, up here in uh, upstate, that's pretty common. Most places are closed one, if not two nights a week or two days a week. Um, and we'll see what we're going to do in terms of food offerings on those other days, whether it's, you know, pop-ups or food trucks or sort of BYO TBD. Well, man, I'm I'm really excited for you. I, I I can't wait to come check this out. It's, you know, to know that this has been this culmination of experience for you building to this knowledge, your relationships around New York State, your like true love for that region, your eagerness to like experiment and explore and play. Like, this is super exciting, Paul, and I, it's been awesome to hear about it and. Um, keep this posted. I, 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 I'm, it's going to be really awesome to watch this all come together. You know, I will. And, uh, I think that sounds like probably a good place to wrap. Um, so thanks for having this conversation with me today. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks again to Dave Miller for the opening and closing music. Check him out. DaveMillerGuitar.com. His latest album came out earlier this year, self-titled Dave Miller. You can find that wherever you purchase music or stream. Shout out to Len Thompson, founder of Cork Report. And David Flaherty, have a great weekend. Great to talk to you. Talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, buddy.